I'm Brandon Reed, and you're listening to Real Estate for the Rest of Us, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the world of real estate investing. I want to cut through all the industry jargon and instead serve up actionable and unintimidating information that you can use in your own real estate journey. I interview real estate professionals, and we talk about their real-life experiences. It's real simple. Now let's get into the show. In today's episode, I talk with Sean Morrissey. Sean has been building his rental property portfolio for the last 18 years. As he did that, he also built a really successful property management company. That gives him a really unique perspective as both a longtime landlord and as a property manager. In our interview, Sean dives deep into various strategies and tactics that he learned as a property manager and now implements in order to effectively manage his personal buy-and-hold properties. He does a phenomenal job of laying out practical, actionable advice that anyone in any phase of their real estate journey can put into practice and benefit from. I hope that in this interview, you find practical insights that you can learn from or directly apply as you continue on your own journey in real estate. And now here's my conversation with Sean. All right, guys, we have uh, Sean Morrissey with us today. How are you today, Sean? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Um, thankful that you took the time. I think we connected on Bigger Pockets. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah. Bigger Pockets. Is that how it, awesome. Um, yeah, a few months back. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I posted. If anybody wants to, and you, you had reached out, you're in the Chicago area, so we connected online, and um, and now you're here. So uh, really happy that you're here. Happy that you're taking the time. Um, I will. I'll just. I'll dig right in. Uh, a couple easy questions here, just to kind of ground us and give you a little bit. Uh, give listeners a little bit of a background on you. Um, how long have you been in real estate? Uh, and then, how did you first get involved? What kind of drew you to the world of real estate? Yeah, so I've been a landlord since 2003. So more or less a, a buy and hold investor. I've been a, a real estate broker since 2007. Um, but ultimately. I got uh, interested in real estate back in, really it was 2001. My dad gave me a book on uh, using uh, investment real estate as a tax shelter. And okay. you know, back in those days, I was in my early 20s. I really had no idea that was even plausible or much less really yeah. like what it meant. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of went into it with uh, kind of some intrigue as to let's dig a little bit deeper. I jumped into a couple uh, RIA groups here in the Chicagoland area. And then purchased my first uh, rental property back in June of 2003. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath in a town called Hanover Park, and I still own it to this day. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I think that's probably um, an, uh, a unique story to say you still have the the home that you got started with. That's really cool. Yep. Um, you So it, you said how old were you, did you mention? So let's see. When I, 2003, I was 20, I was 25 at the time. Okay. So relatively young. I mean, getting, if I got, I think a book, um, in my mid twenties, I guess I'm only 30 now, but, um, if I got a book about tax shelters when I was in my mid twenties, I probably wouldn't have paid much attention. What, I mean, yeah. what drew you into that? That's, that's pretty unique for someone so young to be, uh, to be interested in that kind of thing and looking for a way to grow or protect their wealth. Well, I think ultimately just the fact that my dad gave this to me and was just like, read it. Met yeah, something. that makes sense. But, but honestly, what's funny is the follow-up book to that is the one that everybody mentions, right? Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yep, yep. It gives you the, the foundation for what's an asset, what's a liability, and then the cash flow quadrant goes into more detail. But at the end of the day, it's really those, those two books, I suppose, that kind of set me on a path 
Um, but really getting involved in those, those RIA groups back in those days, uh, really helped me make a commitment to, you know, educate myself and then just kind of, you know, study more than anything, um, you know, what, what landlording was, at least in the Chicagoland area before jumping into it. Yeah, for sure. So why buy and hold? Why jump into that area? Well, ultimately, um, buy and hold real estate, um, back in those days, I was, you know, really just looking to get my feet wet and understanding what a landlord, um, what landlording's like. Mm-hmm. But as I've evolved as an investor, I, I've come to feel that buy and hold real estate is is ultimately the best form of real estate investment. And there's really, you know, four reasons for that. The first of which is you get the rental cash flows, right? So you always want to buy for a positive cash flow, um, leave money in your pocket at the end of the month. Uh, the mm-hmm. second being the the tax advantages that depreciation and writing off expenses give you. So there is a tax shelter there still to this day. Um, you get the the principal pay down by holding that property over a long term of time and having the tenants rent basically pay down that principal for you. And yeah. then ideally you get appreciation as well. So um, yeah, and then and that's part of the reason I haven't sold that property either. Now, you know, to, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but you know, ultimately because I've held that held that property for 16 going on 17 years now, some of the depreciation isn't going to carry over as well as it did in those early years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, performing a 1031 exchange on a property like that probably makes sense in the next few years. Yeah, uh, sure. But, but when you have a tenant that wants to continuously renew the lease and treats the property well and pays rent on time, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Day. You might as well just let the good times roll. Yeah, for sure. That's a good problem to have, I suppose. Um, okay, neat. Yeah, those are all really good points. And in particular, absolutely, each one of those things are what draw me and I know a lot of people um, into buy and hold real estate. You you got into it um, early on. I know that a lot of people find that uh, that area of real estate to be kind of a higher barrier to entry first, because it takes or it can take, it often takes cash of your own um, to have to get into the first property. Did you use cash of your own? Did you use creative financing? Yeah, I just use cash of my own. I mean, I, okay. I'm pretty much, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, back in those days, it was actually, with that property, it was a first time home buyer uh, grant program that I was able okay. to take advantage of. So it was a little bit unique. It was like a 3% down payment, um, you know, a certain portion, I believe it was like 10% came from, uh, actually it was a 0% loan from the County and then roughly 20% came from a local bank at about a point below what mortgages were trading at that time. And then nice. the, the majority was made up by another local bank at, at market rate. So, um, so that was a little bit unique, but at the same time too, you know, anything I bought, the four properties I bought prior to 2008 before the bubble burst, you know, back in those days, you know, the second property, I was able to put one and a half percent down. I mean, banks were just lending to anybody with a heartbeat back in those yeah. days. So it, was, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was easy to get caught up in it. And ultimately, uh, you know, I was fortunate to survive that debacle. But um, yeah, back in those days, it was uh, it was a different beast. For sure. Um, that's interesting. Okay. So that's, that's a little bit of, of how you got started and that kind of the trajectory, trajectory you were on. Um, what about now, Sean? Uh, what are you up to now? Um, how did your career kind of uh, morph into what it is today and where you're headed? Yeah. So, you know, ultimately what's, what's a little bit funny about me is, you know, back when I got my bachelor degree, it was in restaurant management, right? And what I okay. came to learn by working in restaurants, um, 
uh, for some time is that ultimately it was a lot of work for not much money. And, uh, through that, through that, um, kind of disappointment at that time of my life, it really motivated me to, to find something else. So when I, you know, came across the whole tax shelter book and bought my first property in 03 and then another one in 04, and I kind of house hacked that one where I basically rented out the rooms back in those days. Um, you know, ultimately I, I started getting the momentum of like, I could see where this is going to provide a better quality of life for me than it will by staying in restaurants. Right. So yeah. in 2006, uh, late 2006, I ended up, you know, getting, um, my real estate broker license. I actually hung out with a Keller Williams franchise here locally. Um, and then, you know, Keller Williams is a great place to start out. I ultimately took all the training classes back in those days got a feel for what being an agent's like, but you know, I, I, I got my license originally because I just thought I'd have access to the MLS and it'd make me a better investor. Um, only to find out that, Hey, this is frankly a better career path than restaurants are anyways. Sure. So, you know, ultimately got my license, hung it with Keller Williams when the market crashed back in 2007, 2008, I had, I had, um, I kind of had a wide open market available to me. And the reason I say that is that because I was involved in so many RIA groups and had been a landlord for a couple of years and went through an eviction or two and realtors just really were not interested in handling rentals. Basically my market was that I targeted homeowners that couldn't sell their oh, home yeah. and didn't want to go through foreclosure or short sale, but had to take, you know, typically like a job relocation out of state right. to help the folks rent their home. Um, that ultimately led to me managing properties for other folks starting in 2010. Um, boy, back in those days, I mean, we had Fannie Mae approach us and we managed some homes for Fannie Mae. So they were basically Fannie Mae owned homes with tenants in them that they didn't want to put on the market because you were just putting more supply on the market, dragging prices down further. So oh, yeah. we managed homes for them as well. And uh, really, we got up to about 200 homes managed um, uh, between 2011 and 2018. But yeah, it was in 2011, I opened up my own brokerage, Chicagoland Realty Group Partners here in the Western suburbs, of the Chicagoland area. And, uh, you know, it was roughly 2013. Once the bank started lending again, I got back into uh, more buy and hold investment type uh, purchases. So, you know, these days, um, I've got my real estate brokerage here in Aurora. I tend to be more of a buy and hold than, um, than I'm an agent, but I do both. Um, and yeah, ultimately I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but back in early 2018, I, I sold our management portfolio. It was about 200, okay. um, use those proceeds to buy a few multifamily buildings. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at today. I'm, I'm really, uh, pretty heavily invested on the, the landlord or buy and hold investment side and then, uh, do some agency stuff on the side as, uh, as things just come across my plate. Okay, awesome. So eighteen in eighteen, you sold your um your PM business. Yeah, yeah. Basically, okay. it was it was more of an assignment of properties to another brokerage. But at the end okay. of the day, um, yeah, I basically put money in the pocket and was able to leverage that into buying a few buildings. And for sure, now that I'm about two years later into that, I'm looking at releveraging those assets that I bought, pulling some cash out again, and and buying more buildings, just doing it all over again. Right. So that's Damn. uh. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm doing. So yeah, I mean, I've got some goals this year, and you know, some goals over the next five years. Now that I've got kids and a family, but the the ultimate goal, just like so many of your listeners, I'm sure, is financial freedom. Mm -hmm. And for me, financial freedom is hitting three times 
your expenses on a monthly basis. So my goal this year is to hit three times of what my expenses are. So okay. I can truly say, all right, I've, I've done it. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm close. Um, I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way there, frankly, but yeah, by re-leveraging some assets and, and buying a few more and, you know, just making sure you buy them right. And you're able to put the appropriate capital expenditures into them. Well, cash flow and just, just keep, keep it going. Yeah, for sure. Um, the it, looking back on your decision to um, get out of uh, property management and uh, focus more on the buy and hold side of things was that the right decision? I mean, is that something that you think was was uh, looking back with hindsight the uh, the right move? You know what? It's 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 tough to say. Um, I will say the the ultimate advantage is by getting a cash influx so that you can put that into a hard asset that ultimately is going to build your net worth quicker. Yeah. And um, a business can is uh, looking back was a very wise decision. Um, however, um, by owning properties and having your own, you know, property management division, really one business helps the other at all times. Yeah. It's yeah. Subsidiary businesses that works really well. Um, so that's that's one of those things where, um, you know, I kind of miss that to some degree. But I will say the the ultimate disadvantage <laughs> And, and I'm sure most folks are like, oh my gosh, why would you be in residential property management? You're going to get called <laughs> 2am and all that. Well, we got systems to take care of all that. Sure, the hard sure. part is that ultimately you've got a tenant that wants, you know, for instance, everything fixed today and a landlord that doesn't necessarily want to spend the money to do it. So that's yeah. the, that's always the, the, you're in this middle ground that interesting in some weird positions sometimes. So if you can control the asset and then only have to worry about the tenant portion, that's like 50% of the problem. So by by owning your own asset and running your own property management that way, it's it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, in in this day and age, just through the the technologies that have come out over the last gosh, just over the last ten years, it's so much easier to manage your properties today on your own from a distance than it was ten years ago when you sure. had to have a property manager with uh, with boots on the ground and and all that good stuff. Sure. I, I'm actually, I'm curious to know if you started to see um, it be more difficult to get business into your property management um, side of things it, it, since there are so many kind of self-help tools to help you manage your own property. And that's, that's an interesting point. So boy, I'd say it was right around 2015. Um, I could really start to feel the competition and it wasn't so much the, the self-help tools. It was the fact that so many realtors um, and property management companies and national property management players in the single family home space started to come into the Chicagoland market and really yeah, put a yep. crunch on us. Um, and at the same time too, as the sale market heated up, less folks wanted to rent their house and ultimately said, well, if I can sell it an and have an equity position, I can roll into another property. I'll just do that. So that was really the, the feel in, in 2015. But this day and age, I, I think to your point, you might be right. Not only do you have Competitors in your local marketplace that are property management providers, but now you've got you know certain technologies that frankly have streamlined things to a point where you may not need a property manager if you're within a thirty mile radius because you know you can collect your rent through Cozy and you can uh, you know, handle your repair calls through some call centers that are out there. But um, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of my fifty cents there. Right? So it seems like you have um, obviously a really unique um, set of experiences and background that like intersect you, um, between being a landlord and having your own buy and hold portfolio. 
and then managing other other people's portfolios as a property manager. Um, so, and you've been doing it for a long time. So, as those years have gone by, and you've seen so much change, you made it through the um, 2007-2008 crash, and um, I'm just sure you've seen so many things uh, change in the market, and you've had to adapt probably both arms of your real estate career uh, accordingly. But what's one thing I think uh, specifically as a property manager that you saw? Over those years, actually, as a property manager and a landlord, let's let's talk about both um, that you have seen that you have kind of implemented and, and has been most consistent. Kind of, in you, it could be a system or a process or um, uh, who you're hiring and people. But what's the most consistent thing uh, that's been effective for your property management business and for your buy and hold uh, personal investments that you've seen consistent over the years as so much um, changes. Yeah, you know, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is having a, a property management software that okay, works yeah. for you and or your clients, right? So, for instance, um, you know, back back when we started managing properties third party, I'd used Buildium. And I used Buildium for maybe four or five years. And I mean, back in 2010, 2011, there really wasn't a whole lot else out there unless you spend big bucks. Yeah. Then, boy, in 2014, 2015, um, Appfolio came in knocking on the door heavily. I mean, you get a call like every week saying switch, us, switch over to us. <laughs> I finally gave them a shot and they're good, but I've come to find that they've increased prices and the value is not necessarily there. So, um, you know, it, last year I tried Tenant Cloud. If your listeners are familiar with them, they're a good entry level software if you're looking just to manage your own properties cozy as well. I mean, I experimented with them, but ultimately the last year and a half have been back at Buildium. Having said all that, to answer your question, the best thing you can do is get a management software you're comfortable with because cool. you're going to need to do your bookkeeping, you know, mm -hmm. collect rent in an efficient manner and document your work orders and the the invoices that are related to that. So yeah, I think it's an important I think it's an important point you made as well that um, it's not only a, a software that works for you and your business but also for um, the tenants, right? Cuz they have to interact with the software too and pay their rent and so it's an interesting point. Yeah, great point. And something that's going to work well for the tenants that they're going to easily understand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're managing landlords as well, then, you know, that make sure that their owner portal is going to be comfortable with that as well. But yeah, that's mm -hmm. probably been the big, that's been the big consistent. And, um, you know, while there's been mergers and some changes here or there, most of the management software is relatively the same. The big difference is probably how quickly your rent gets processed through their electronic funds transfer system. Um, so you always want to be cognizant of that. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, having that management software that works for you is going to be the, uh, the key. Awesome. And what about um, as a buy and hold investor? What's something that you've continued to implement that's been effective over the years? Well, let's see. I mean, I think there's been a lot of variables there. So, like I was talking about back in you know 2003 to 2008, you know, you just had to find the right property. You were kind of praying for appreciation more than you were in for cash flow those days because mm -hmm. uh, prices were accelerating so much. But you know, it was fairly easy to get financing. And then from 2008 to 2012 for me, you know, ultimately financing was very difficult. 2013 on has gotten easier. And as you improve your knowledge, you learn new things. But I mean, I'd probably say the big thing for me these, this, these days that I wish I knew 10 years ago that I know now is just understanding how commercial financing works and the ease mm. of 
the underwriting and the ease of, uh, you know, just, yeah, I guess the ease, the underwriting and the fact that that coverage ratio is really what they want to see, which is in essence, how well the property is going to cash flow. So, so long right. as, so long as the, uh, you know, the listeners, you know, they pull anything from this episode, I suppose it's call your local commercial lender and buy them a coffee, take them out to lunch and just kind of understand how they look at deals. And I think once you do that, you'll start to have, uh, you know, new, new, uh, new deals open up to you. That may be interesting. Before. Yeah, for sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. It's a great answer. So, um, being both again, a, a PM and a landlord over, uh, such a long period of time and had such a variety of experiences over that time. Um, what, one of the things that was uh, interesting to me as we began to talk, Sean, and I was saying, you know, we were talking about a topic to cover today. Um, you had said, well, I could talk about, um, kind of, cause I have both of these experiences. I can talk about, um, things that maybe landlords aren't implementing that PMs are. And we could go either way with that. We could talk about things that landlords are uh, implementing that PMs aren't, but I imagine the, the, the former would be, uh, probably, there'd be probably more meat there. But what, let, let's, so let's talk about that. What, what do you think is some things that, um, that PMs are using in their business to run things more efficiently that maybe landlords um, who maybe just have one or two or three properties aren't benefiting from? Yeah. And, and you know what, again, it all comes down to your scale, right? Like some of these, sure, sure. the tools I'll talk about, you know, may not make sense if you have one to five properties, but once you get over five, typically you got to start to find some efficiencies and, uh, and implement those. But really there's, there's three things that property managers do, in my opinion. The first of which is handle rent collection and bookkeeping, right? I guess those mm -hmm. go hand in hand. The second of which is handle repairs and invoicing. And then the third is really to inspect the property on a, on a regular basis. So really amongst what you're paying for on a monthly basis, it's really comes down to those three general tasks. So when it comes to rent collection and bookkeeping, you know, we kind of talked about this in the last few minutes, but ultimately it's making sure they're using a management software that you're going to be comfortable with. Or mm -hmm. if your uh, landlord wants to take on the management tasks themselves, then finding that management software that they're comfortable with. So, you know, not to name drop, but yeah, at the end of the day, and I'm not being promoted by any of these companies sure, sure. that I've used them, you know, Cozy is a good place to start. Tenant Cloud's a good place to start. Um, I believe Cozy may be free. Tenant Cloud is only a few bucks a month. But I will say the drawback with either of those softwares, in my opinion, is it typically takes something like four to five business days to get your rent from the point in which the tenant paid it. So if you need oh, wow. your rent to pay your mortgage tomorrow, that's not going to make sense. So, you know, in that case, you know, you may look at like a, a Zelle or a Venmo, um, you know, something your bank might offer that offers some sure. kind of e-payment or through an app. Um, but then you're left figuring out the bookkeeping, right? Right, if, right. If you're small enough, you can use an Excel spreadsheet. Um, as you grow, then Tenant Cloud, Cozy, some of the other management software is going to make more sense. On the repair and maintenance end, I mean, really, you can Google 24-hour call center, right? And there's options mm -hmm. out there. However, you know, one idea that was provided to me, and I'm just starting to experiment it with a little bit, is to go through Upwork and hire a virtual assistant. Yeah. And ultimately, you get a Google Voice number. You basically have that Google Voice number direct to your email and your your uh, your VA's email, and it's that VA that's setting up that work order for you. Now, naturally, you have to have you have to have uh, direction 
to that VA as to, you know, if there's a, if this is a plumbing issue, you're going to direct them to these, you know, three plumbers all in priority order, uh, electrical issue, three electricians all in priority order, order, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, that could be a good way, a, a good little way to hack, <coughs> excuse me, hack a property management's role so that it makes more sense for you. Again, it all comes down to scale and what it's going to cost you out of pocket, but food for thought. Call center using a VA as a call center. Um, and then your VA would handle that invoicing as well and um, pay that on your behalf if need be or direct it to you to pay on your behalf. The third way is the third, the third item, inspections, to me is pretty easy. There's um, a company I've used for years now called Happy Inspector. And ultimately, you're able to do inspections of your properties through their software, and you're able to integrate photos into that software. Um, now, Happy Inspector, you know, over the course of time, they've increased their rates a little bit, but I still find them to be a very good tool. The only thing they're really lacking is the ability to take video within their software. Oh, wow. Um, other than that, it's very user-friendly, clean reports, perfect for third-party property management, frankly. The other option that I like is a company called Z Inspector. They tend to be uh, very affordable. They can actually integrate photos or videos. I want to say it's maybe 10 bucks a month. Like it's super cheap. I don't find it to be particularly user-friendly, um, but you get used to it. You'll justify the cost savings, I'm sure. So those are a few ideas that I have for your listeners when it comes to means in which to find efficiencies and you know, I guess some property management other than hiring somebody out. Um, but at the end of the day, you're just going to go to your local marketplace, get a feel for what the general rate is and what services you're going to get and your confidence level that that property management company is going to do a good job on your behalf. And if you feel like it's not worth what you're spending, then maybe you integrate some of these tools or until you get to 10 properties, you integrate these tools with the idea that they help you scale and ultimately build systems. Because the, the easy thing here is, is buying the property, in my opinion. The hard thing is managing it. And then the hardest thing is really having the foresight to see what your exit strategy is going to be and to be able to implement that because you've got a lot of variables there. You've got the whole time, you've got economic forces. So you've got, uh, you've got to have the management systems in place to get you from beginning to end or it's going to catch up with you over time and you'll ultimately fail. So make sure, uh, to all the listeners out there, just make sure you, you take the time in doing so. Those were all really, really good um, pieces of advice, Sean. Thanks for sharing those. So as I look through this, as I kind of take my own notes and I'm looking through, are these all things that you would say, um, uh, well, first, I'll ask my first question. Are, are these things that over time as your property management group grew, um, you, you were doing all this in-house or were you still um, like have vendors that worked with you? Yeah. So I've always subcontracted out to vendors. Okay. Reason being is that ultimately it's just a more efficient model to have three electricians compete against the same job for electrical work to get the best price. And then their insurance is covering themselves and the job and all that rather than you hiring an electrician, bringing them in house. I mean, it ultimately just, it gets too darn expensive until you, unless you have a model in which you're really, you know, probably somewhere in the ballpark of five, 600 properties managed. But at the end of the day, it just tends to be more cost effective to subcontract this, that stuff out. And uh, and yeah, with any of the, the tools I recommend, it's it, trial and error over the years, right? I mean, I tried to bring an, an in-house handyman in years ago, only to find that his quality of craftsmanship 
wasn't up to snuff. Sure. Know, travel time, and now I've got to have insurance, and yeah, yeah. Whether he's ten ninety nine or W two, um, so that's yeah. There's there's struggles that come with uh, with with trying to bring it in house for sure. For sure. So as you're scaling, um, and you know, maybe you have three properties or five properties and you're managing these things yourself through software, through virtual assistants or whatever, at what point, of course, this is going to be, um, there's so many variables and unique circumstances to everybody's situation. But, um, what would you think is a rule of thumb where people need to start thinking about, um, about using a property manager? Cause at some point it does become too much and you can't manage your own properties, especially if you, if you're doing this on the side or, um, or any other reasons that take so much time, when do you need to start looking for a property manager instead of doing it yourself? Yeah. I, th- I think the first variable to consider is, you know, location, right? So if you're in Seattle and you've got a property in Chicago, you need a property manager. Sure, right? sure. So if you're more than 30 miles away from your property at any point in time, you probably should be considering a manager like today. But if you're within the same locale as where you live, as to where you own rental property, then ultimately I would say, you know, naturally you want to start thinking about systems and scalability before you buy that first property, but you need to seriously start implementing simple systems by the fifth property. And by the 10th property, you got to have systems in place that are going to be scalable because you know this thing's like a snowball. Once you get going, sure, sure, are gonna that snowball is going to get big and it's going to keep rolling. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you're not going to be able to stop it. So you got to make sure you have the foresight to know what you need when you need it in order to uh, satisfy your rental property systems demands at any moment sure. in time. But yeah, five and ten properties if you live locally is the way to go. Um, okay. Start considering management systems. I'd certainly say by the 15th property, you're better off handing that off to a property manager uh, just for time efficiency sake and the highest and best use of your time. But you know, it's all relative to the systems you you make. I mean, at the end of the day, I still manage all my own properties and it's because I have more confidence in my systems and then handing it off to somebody at you sure. know, 8% of the monthly rent or 10% of the monthly rent. I, sure. Yeah, so. Awesome. Um, I have one more kind of landlord PM question for you. As um, you know, it se- it seems pretty common um, for the reason that you actually mentioned earlier. It seems like there's um, a lot of uh, complementing of one another that businesses that the businesses can do. If you're a buy and hold investor and also um, a property manager yourself, it feels like people start to go that route. They start growing their portfolio. They get to five, 10, 15 properties. Um, they kind of know their way around how to manage properties. So maybe they take on their uncle's rental um, and then somebody else and then somebody else's. And before they know it, they're kind of like, well, I'm also managing, I'm managing my properties. Might as well manage some other people's. They start their own property management business and that kind of rolls forward. Seems like a, a common pattern. Is that something that you would suggest or is that something that you would stay away from? And, and um, like if a buy and hold investor, would you recommend that they kind of keep their eye on that and focus on that? Or if property management is a good route um, to kind of build your wealth, if you're ultimately going to kind of do what you did, you you built a lot in your property management group and then um, ended up selling it and leveraging it into um, investments that you're holding, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think that you've got to look at the highest and best use of your time. Right. So I know yeah, sure. property managers that ultimately, you know, they've got a portfolio of 800, a thousand homes they manage, which is fantastic. 
so long as they've got the people in place to make that happen on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just this house of cards that's ready to fall over tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've looked into subsidiary businesses from property management, and those could be like owning a cleaning company or owning some kind of duct cleaning franchise or carpet cleaning franchise, stuff that you may need on a regular basis for properties you manage. And rather than give somebody else that income stream, another local business in town, you bring it in-house and now all of a sudden you have uh, another stream of income from another business that is complementary to what you're already doing. I mean, that kind of stuff to me makes sense, but you've got yeah, to sure. be able to have the uh, the systems in place, have the time in place, and ultimately put that in line with what your ultimate goal is, right? And for me, yeah. it's being able to control my time while having passive income coming on a regular basis. And because I'm confident that I can go that route over the next 12 months, um, I don't really have my eye on buying subsidiary businesses or really, you know, needing to expand a a third party property management portfolio. Um, so, you know, I think it comes down to what your big why is right. And then ultimately Mm -hmm. just kind of work it backwards in regards to what's going to help you get there the quickest and not, not, not slow you down. And, uh, yeah. you know, naturally there'll be bumps in the road and all that good stuff, but, um, you know, all that kind of stuff comes along for a reason. So for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really good perspective. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned some of this earlier on in the, in the show, um, about, uh, joining some RIAs and how that was a big part of your early education and you kind of get, um, getting started. Um, if that's the answer, that's great. Or what else, um, what, what would you uh, say it was one of the most valuable things over, um, this, you know, I think you said 16, 17, 18 years that you've been doing this. Um, what, what has been some of the most valuable things that you've done for your education as an investor in particular, has it been books, has it been RIAs, has it been conferences? Uh, what have you, uh, used to learn and grow your knowledge that's worked best for you? And it's, it's funny cause you know, um, when I think back, I really, I think of all the opportunity I, I probably gave up, meaning um, all the conferences I probably should have gone to, but I didn't because it was on the other sure. side of the country and it was too expensive. Or, you know, I've never paid for a coach, believe it or not. It mm. seems like coaching mm. is really a proponent in, in growing your education these days. I can't speak to it because I've never, I've never had one. Um, sure. My, my education tends to be by taking action and then ultimately attending conferences that I think are going to complement what I'm already doing or are, I know are going to have a direct impact in helping me grow. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I've got a real good answer for you there. I will say this day and age, <laughs> um, at the end of the day, I'd probably say this is going on for three years now. I mean, I listen to podcasts every day. It's yeah. the amount of content that's just out there for free that for comes sure. from people that just have experience is all you need outside of the networking opportunities, right? That RIAs provide and the conferences provide. But I mean, even as, even as these uh, conferences are now going virtual where you can now just log in off your computer and participate while you don't have the networking opportunity, the, you know, the education's still there. So yeah, I think if I was to start it all over again, I would probably, I'd probably sit down the first of every January and, basically look at the conferences that are coming up over the next 12 months and start to bookmark those and attend those and then Mm -hmm. find two or three RIAs that you can participate in based on your free time and what you got going on with the family and all that stuff. But honestly, I didn't do it enough. 
I probably, I probably, I probably could have been better, could be better if I, if I did that on a more regular basis. But as you have a family and, and sure. you know, you've got businesses and things of that nature, you just kind of let life happen to some degree. So yeah, at the, at the same time, listen to those podcasts. It's free content. Yeah. And uh, yeah. there's so many ones out there, including your own, that it's, it's something that uh, everybody needs to be doing. Yeah. Podcasts are so valuable. And the fact that they're, the fact that they're free or, um, it's just crazy. Yeah. The amount of, yeah. the amount of good stuff crazy. that's out there. And I mean, there's a lot of not great stuff out there, but with reviews and things, you can really nail down, um, what the stuff is that you need to be listening to and to listen to it audibly. So you can do it kind of passively as you're driving or doing chores or whatever. It's, it's super helpful. Um, I know you mentioned you had, you have a podcast, Sean, what can you tell my listeners what that is? If they kind of have appreciated your perspective here and want to hear more what you have to say about, uh, that topic. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. So I have a podcast called landlording for life. Um, I probably is a, a good synonym for how I described my past. Um, <laughs> yeah. Basically I'm just kind of a buy and hold and never sell type of guy. Um, but yeah, ultimately that's another podcast I've tried to put together where ultimately we just provide strictly content, sprinkle in landlord stories from here, here, or there, cool. um, but try not to inundate folks with too many, you know, commercials or Sell techniques is just content. So, you know, this past week we rolled one out on uh, cost segregation. If, you know, if anybody's interested in that, you can check out Landlording for Life on your favorite podcast player. And, uh, yeah. Cool. Really, uh, so it's available on any podcast player. It's not like a specific yeah. platform. Good, good, yep, cool. Yep. iTunes awesome. Is, yeah. My favorite. So, yeah. I stick awesome. With that. Great. Check it out. I uh, hope people have a chance to do that. Okay. Let's see. So uh, again, you kind of mentioned this earlier. You're kind of touching on a lot of topics I'm eventually going to ask you about, but um, you mentioned you uh, are a goal setter and that you look, you kind of mentioned one year or five years, um, specifically uh, one year ahead. What what are you looking uh, to accomplish? Where do you want to be in one year um, from now? Well, I, you know, at the uh, really you know, we're recording this in late January of 2020. So back in mid December of 2020, um, set my goals for this year. And what I did is I tried to break out a financial goal, an education goal, a fitness goal, and uh, a vocational goal, which uh, the vocational goal is more or less my wife's goal. But um, <laughs> having said all that, my, my big goal for this year is to obtain $20,000 in passive income per month and rental profits. So I just, you know, 20,000 in 2020. Right. Okay. So nice. That works well. That, I'll be I'll be in pretty good shape. Uh, my educational goal is ultimately I want to attend four conferences in 2020. Um, you know, and I don't mean stuff that's just like coming to the Chicagoland area. Stuff that where I can you know travel, ultimately meet new people, expand sure. my mind, all that good stuff. Um, fitness goal, basically, you know, I'm just trying to get my weight down a little bit. So uh, yeah. <laughs> get more shape, better shape. So, and I've actually been taking a boxing conditioning class. I nice. Awesome. Every day and I'm, I'm feeling great. So, um, yeah, I'm focusing more on the, uh, the holistic approach rather For than, sure. you know, if you talk to me five, even 10 years ago, I was kind of a workhorse and, uh, yeah, you know, all that stuff happens for a reason, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, more of a well-balanced approach to life. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, my goals these days really revolve around my family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've got a couple of young kids and I want to be there for them and, you know, use my rental properties as a leverage to help me do that. So that's, yeah, that's kind of a synopsis as to how 2020 is going to unfold. That's awesome. Um, I think you're absolutely right that a holistic approach is the right one. I think that, um, you know, as you're trying to grow, 
a business, you focus on the business side and you neglect so much of the rest. Um, but what's what's hard to uh, what's hard to realize in the moment, but so often is true, is that if you take care of the other things, you're better at growing your business, right? If you're feeling healthier, if you're more in shape, um, you're more alert and in tune with day to day with your interactions and as you grow your business, all that is connected. So it's awesome to yeah. hear. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't know it until you until you don't know it. Right. Which, uh, exactly. For me, it was getting my annual physical to the doctor and he's like, oh, you got high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And I'm like, gosh, I that happen. <laughs> yeah, that um, happened. But you know, the last thing I should mention regarding this, this goal setting is what I ended up doing then is I, I created an image with the goals all spelled out and, you know, all kind of like in my face. And I made it the backdrop to my laptop. So every morning that I, you know, open my laptop, they're like right there. So, nice. um, and I think that's important because for me in the past, I'd have like my goals written. It would be like on a bulletin board or something of that nature. Sure. Just ends covered up or, you know, whatever the case might be. So I feel like um, while there's so many different goal setting techniques these days that I, my head's spinning, I feel like just setting something simple breaking it out quarterly or monthly if you can do that or weekly would be fantastic but having them in your face is kind of the the resonating thing to like mind you daily have yeah. them in your face I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that sounds uh, that that aligns with I think a lot of the, the way a lot of people uh, think about it. Whether it's putting it on your mirror, or on your laptop, or something that you're looking at often to remind yourself of where you're headed, it's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, lastly, Sean, uh, if you were to uh, go back and tell yourself in the early 2000s um, the best piece of advice you can think of with what you know now, uh, what would that be? That would save that version of yourself the most trouble. I think it would be, uh, and you know, it's becoming kind of cliche these days, but to start bigger, but in order to start bigger with bigger deals, you've got to understand commercial financing. So yeah. again, mm -hmm. it's one of those things where listeners take your commercial banker out to lunch, understand what they're looking for, um, how they look at deals, and then you could start bringing those deals to them. Um, you know, a lot of buddies um, have gotten in the world of syndication. I have not gone that route um, mm -hmm. because I, you know, my goals are, kind of just, I could see the finish line. Um, but that's certainly another route that listeners can, can look into if they want to go bigger, faster. But that to me, that, that realm of real estate investment typically takes some experience. You got to build a track record before folks are going to give you, before they're going to give you their money. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, in my opinion, so if you're going to start tomorrow, you want to start bigger, you know, understand commercial financing and then go out there and start to pick at the deals. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's pretty much it. Start yeah. bigger and, and learn the financing techniques that go around that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Sean, this was all really, really good, man. Um, I really appreciate your perspective um, and your insight in, into all this. I know this will be valuable um, for any listener that tunes in. So I appreciate your time tonight, man. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Oh, and lastly, before we go, I do want to I do want to say uh, how can if again, if people found the episode helpful um, and want to get in touch with you, I, I, I know they can check out your podcast, but how can they uh, get in touch with you if they have additional questions or, or thoughts? Yeah. So uh, the podcast website is landlordingforlife.com okay. um, or you can just give me a call. Uh, phone number is 630-423-6020. Uh, my email address is my name. It's Sean, S-E-A-N-R. And then Morrissey, M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y at gmail.com. So yeah, you're welcome to reach out. Happy to help out anybody or find me on Bigger Pockets for that matter. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate it. You have a great night, man.
You bet. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. If you guys enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. That actually helps a lot to get the podcast out there as people are looking for helpful real estate investing resources online. You can also like our Facebook page to keep up to date with new episodes as they publish. And don't forget to subscribe through whatever podcast player that you use. If you have questions about a specific topic that we covered, or if you have a suggestion about another area that you'd like to see me dig into, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. I'd love to get in touch. You can email me at brandon at realestatefortherestofus.com. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. One show at a time, we'll work to make real estate investing accessible for the rest of us.